Welcome back to the Autoblog Podcast. I'm Greg Migliori. We've got an awesome show for you this week. We're going to talk about the cars that are set to end production this year. There's some interesting ones, like the R8, the TT, the Camaro, the Jeep Cherokee, many more. The list goes on. A lot of times this list is sort of like a footnote to what uh, is disappearing. This year, it's, it's a pretty good list. It's almost like an early Hall of Fame ballot for the 2000s. I digress. We'll talk about the Tesla recall slash fallout from that. Uh, autopilot uh, perhaps is getting a bit of a reckoning. We'll talk about some Scout mules as well as just the general Scout EV business, something I think is kind of cool, as well as the Haggerty bull market, collector cars that might be a good investment for you uh, in the coming year. We've been driving the Mazda 3 and the Lexus TX. That's the TX, not the Texas, but it's, it's a pretty big SUV. Let's put it that way. And then we will preview the Honda Passport Trail Sport. Uh, that was driven by associate editor Byron Hurd, who I will bring in right now. Welcome aboard. Hey, hey. Good to see you. Likewise, likewise. Uh, it's a pretty nice day right now. It's uh, rather sunny. Uh, I just took the dog for a very brisk walk. And uh, yeah, it uh, feels like December in Michigan. Let's put it that way. Cold, but bright. Yeah. So, all right, let's talk some cars. Uh the list of cars set to die this year is long. Uh, many on here that I think were very significant for their time. Uh, we we always update this list. Uh, usually we do a new one because you know once they're out of production, they're out. It's time to do more. Uh, with December uh, starting to roll on, we thought it would be a good idea to bring this out and you know talk about it. So one, check out the story. It's on our site. Uh, we think you'll find it interesting. Please get in the comments and let us know. Hey, what was your favorite car? Which of these do you think might come back? Uh, but I think it's a very intriguing list. I think I've driven just about everything on here. Um, you know, I think the most memorable start with that was the 300C, which got the big V8. Uh, it was essentially like, a, it was like a scat pack, almost 300. Um, the 392, I drove that in June. And then production just ended, I think yesterday in Brampton, Ontario. And I, you know, kind of did some socials and was really surprised at the reaction people had uh, as far as just kind of talking about that car and the end of the road for it. I think the 300C should come back uh, in some form. I think it's just, you know, this is the time for it to move on at this phase of its life and then come back as something else. But lots of good stuff on here. I know you're a Challenger owner. Uh, you know, what on the this long list here kind of stands out to you that you'll perhaps miss the most? I mean, this is going to sound a little strange, but I think the one that both most surprised and kind of, I don't know, upset me may be the wrong word, but uh, either way, it's the Jeep Renegade of all things. And and I, I think the reason why it's being discontinued is just because the, the Fiat 500X is, and so it's just a matter of, well, that line's shutting down, so, you know, they're out. And I feel like it'll probably end up getting replaced by something similar at some point, but whether we'll end up getting it here is kind of another question. And I've always really liked it. I mean, the when it first launched, the all-wheel drive manual version of the Renegade was a ton of fun to drive. It was like having just a tiny little hot hatch. And you could really hustle that thing around the corners. It didn't feel tall. And then you could hop into the the trail version of it and, and go out and actually have some fun off-roading if that's what you really wanted to do. So, like, you know, it was a versatile little car. Honestly, pretty reliable for what they are. I've seen, like, looking back at 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 those like as a as a potential like a well if i needed a tiny little practical hatchback type runaround car like the matrix again then something like that's kind of on my radar and every once in a while i'm like you know what it, it, it's a fiat there's got to be something wrong with it right 
And I go and I look and sure enough, most of you know, the owners are pretty happy with them. The reliability reports are pretty good. So it they seem like good little runabouts and I'm I'm really kind of sad to see it go. So between that and the the Fiat 500X, which is on the chopping block too, it's it's kind of a shame because they were two surprisingly interesting little cars that I think a lot of Americans just kind of ignored at face value just because, you know, a renegade didn't feel like a real Jeep to a lot of people and sadly means it kind of escaped consideration in a lot of cases where it probably deserved a little better. That's a deep cut. Uh, I'd say kind of from the back of the deck here, but anytime a Jeep goes away, that's significant. I think Jeep is going to kind of retrench its lineup too. We're looking at the different hybrids and EVs and plug-in hybrids. They're going to start to, you know, proliferate over the next, you know, the rest of the decade. So my guess is something will replace the Renegade. I, like you, liked it. It had its charms. It was a good way to get into the Jeep lineup, which is not a cheap proposition these days to do. So yep, Very true. I was a little surprised that the Escape and the Edge are going to go away to make way for EVs. I kind of wonder if that is one that we may see uh, be adjusted as uh, you know the decade rolls on. I know Jim Farley has been very bullish on Vs, but also at times very pessimistic. Like he's very much a realist. So I feel like if there's a nameplate here that perhaps may find its way back, maybe plug-in hybrid or hybrid only, I don't know. I mean, we generally like the Escape. It's a decent, you know, little crossover. Maxima, no surprise there. We'll lump that in with Charger and Challenger. Um, it's just, you know, old, large cars that we expect to disappear. Um, the Charger and Challenger are coming back in some form in fairly short order. We don't really know what's going on there. And then a couple of Audis too, the R8, the TT. I mean, those are iconic as far as I'm concerned, especially since the turn of the century. You talk about cars that really sort of just captured the mood of what an enthusiast, you know, especially who, you know, had some money to spend was looking for. These two were really impressive. I remember driving the TTRS on a track, uh, geez, I can't remember if it was Spain or Portugal. Some of these trips start to blend together in the years past. It was a great drive. I want to say it was Algarve, um, but memorable cars that really offered rewarding experiences. So, yeah, I mean, I think the trend here is that they're moving away from sedans and even some SUVs, more EVs, but then with that brings question marks. I mean, anything on here that you're you think is going to be back for sure beyond the obvious confirmations here? Uh, I mean, I, I, I still suspect that, you know, we're, we're early days. There's always a rumor that Camaro is going to be turned into something mm -hmm. else, but I, it, it just feels like one that GM is not ready to let go of yet. And honestly, I think it deserves another shot one form or another. It doesn't really matter how it comes back as long as it does. Cause it, you know, it, it, it was so good in the last iteration and it just, you know, it was, the pony car we were waiting for we finally got it when it was almost too late for it to matter and i really feel like that's one that hasn't really been done justice yet so i agree with you i think the camaro will be back i hope it isn't perhaps as like an suv or even a four-door uh for enthusiast reasons but also general motors has made cars for a very long time they don't need to put the camaro name on like a crossover or something you know they can make it a coupe i think you know or even a four-door. You've got Impala, you've got Caprice, lots of great cars that had four doors. You don't need to slap Camaro on that. So I would like to see it come back, I think. 
I think it'd be great as an all EV sporting coupe type thing. That could be really cool. Yeah. All right. So, uh, and then as a footnote, the Honda E is gone. It never made it here, but that was available in Europe and Japan. Cute car, small thing. The Fiat 500e is coming here, ironically enough. And I remember the late Sergio Marchionne used to say things like, don't buy this car. We don't make any yeah. money off of it, so don't buy it. Um, surprised they finally brought it here. And I don't know. I thought Honda was never going to do this. They're just not even that into EVs to bring this thing over here. But I don't know. I think there could have been a market for it, maybe in like, you know, congested urban areas you know, where you, the streets are small and you need to park. Maybe it's like a city car or like a shared car. I don't know. Who knows? But yeah, I mean, it was a cool looking little thing. And it's it's a shame that we never really got to see it here at all. I mean, I, I, I imagine one or two prototypes probably made the rounds here and there, showed up at a couple of, you know, special features and that kind of thing. But just for us to completely miss on this and have it go away so quickly is a real shame. All right. I believe... Uh... You were manning the desk this morning when the Tesla, the big Tesla news of the day, although there's several Tesla items, uh, but this is, you know, 2 million unit recall over autopilot. I think for some people, this is a lot of time, a long time coming. Uh, It's a software control thing. And like, literally, I was taking notes on this to try to get my head around different topics for the podcast. And I just wrote down, you think like. About time, you know, what's your read on the situation? I mean, yeah, it's it. I'm surprised it took this long. I'm not really surprised by the decision to first of all, to to call for a recall. But on top of that, like basically what regulators are saying is the same thing Tesla has been saying, like, ultimately, it's your car. Yeah. And if you're not paying attention, if you're not using it properly and you crash it, that's on you. But this has also kind of been that that threshold that a lot of us have set for autonomy, where if an automaker is not willing to take responsibility for the autonomous behavior of their car, then it's obviously not truly an autonomous vehicle. And of course, we've been saying for years now that Tesla's autopilot is not a self-driving system. It's a semi-self-driving system. It has self-driving programming. It does some things by itself, but it cannot just operate the car for you under all circumstances. And you know, this is just basically the federal government's way of saying the same thing. Like Tesla, you need to tell your people that they need to use it as a tool and not rely on it as a crutch. And unfortunately, though, that doesn't really, you know, click with the messaging that Tesla has for it. I mean, when you call it something autopilot, you know, you set a certain expectation and a lot of people just take that and run with it. I believe we've had, you know, Greg Rasa was saying that uh, one of his uh, family members was saying, oh, you know, I don't need to get a driver's license because one day I'll just get a Tesla, you know, like who, who needs a driver's license if I can just buy a car that'll drive for me. And that's kind of the disconnect, I think, between like the general buying public and people like us who you know actually keep up with this kind of stuff. You know, to us, these are, you know, the, the very bleeding edge of technology that may not even really come to full fruition. I, I'm, I still have my doubts about the consumer adoption of real self-driving tech, because you get to a certain point. You realize that what you want is a car that's going to do exactly what you would do in any given situation. You don't actually want a car that does it right. You want it to behave the way you would. And that's, you know, we see some of that coming through and like, you know, Tesla pushing out changes that let their cars kind of roll stop signs and do other things that on paper are illegal. But because the people who buy these cars want their cars to do it, they're just going to do it. And 
that is not compatible with this notion or that that self-driving technology is here for our safety or here to make sure everybody follows the rules. It's not. It's here to provide a convenient service for people who can afford it at the expense of everybody else who has to get out of the way. And until that changes, then we're stuck in this rut. And you know, Tesla's at the forefront of it, and they're going to keep getting beat up because they insist on trying to get out ahead of the regulatory framework. And people are saying, you know, it's it's the whole you know move fast and break things notion that is wonderful when it's academic. But when the thing that's getting broken is you know your kid's face, it changes the way you feel about these things, right? It's no longer an academic exercise. It's oh well, we're the things getting broken for the benefit of other people who think that what they're doing is righteous when it really isn't. So it's a mess, you know, but hopefully this is progress. To your point, this is sort of an academic application, but this isn't code. This isn't like a computer software thing. This is 956 crashes, a two-year NHTSA investigation, and, you know, the recall covers vehicles going back to 2012. So, I mean, this is real, you know? And I think the way the best way to boil it down is people don't know how to use it properly and they think it's better than it is. It's either or or both, frankly. And the updates that NHTSA is going to tell them to make, which NHTSA, or excuse me, Tesla sort of says they don't agree with, but they're going to do it, which I think is supremely arrogant uh, to have that notion. They're going to include updates that increase visual alerts, simplify engagement, and then make it so auto steer and autopilot are suspended under circumstances where it appears like the driver is not, um, you know, not at all engaged. So, I mean, I think when you, the tricky part is you're going to really have to communicate that to the users here who are such true believers. You know, you can't just turn off the car, you know, turn off autopilot, uh, whereas other systems do work that way, you know, but you don't have that expectation. You could also argue autopilot isn't any better than Super Cruise or Blue Cruise or what Mercedes and Audi have. And it's it's definitely a situation where, um, you know, my phone can do some amazing things. I don't understand how it does it. And then sometimes it doesn't work. But I'm not dying from that most of the time. At least I'm still here to have this podcast. Like, Cars are different. You know what I mean? It affects you and the thing around you. And I like this isn't bashing Tesla. This is just an attitude towards safety that I don't think applies. I feel like you could take that like being on the very like, you know, like forefront of technology. But when it comes to automotive safety, that's just different. It's different than phones, than coding. And like Elon Musk sends people into outer space. So I think he's much more comfortable with risk than most people are. But I mean, this isn't just like his risk. It's everybody who buys the car and everybody who's on the road with them. So that's when you start to look at it as more of a, a societal challenge. Yeah. Well, especially in a situation like this, where like part of what makes people so comfortable with the inherent risk of driving is control. Like when yeah. you feel like, you know, you're when you're controlling the car, when you have control over the situation, you can mitigate this this kind of inherent risk that exists within the situation it's and it's uh, it's cope i mean we're lying to ourselves telling ourselves that we're, we always have an answer to anything that comes our way but when you can tell yourself that 
it, it's comforting. You know, it's like that's our little shield. That's our little that's our safety blanket. And when there's a car, you know, the, or computer really that that's trying to do it for you, you you have that that disconnect where it's just like, well, you know, this may not act the way I want it to. So I shut it off and take control. And you can do that with most systems, well, with all systems now. But the idea that we're going to be at a place where you're never going to need to do it, and Tesla's already kind of like taking away control from its drivers and bits and pieces, you know, the, taking away the the turn signal controls, taking away the, the the shifter controls, like all these little things. Like, don't worry, the car will know what it needs to do. And, you know, 999,999 times out of a million, that's probably true. But it's that one time that kills you, right? So... You know, you, you you're you're taking that 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 risk on yourself when you're driving the car. You're telling yourself, "I am better than the bad things that might happen to me. I can overcome them. No big deal." People are going to learn more and more that when the cars don't do what they want the car to do, even if what they want the car to do is wrong, that suddenly these systems aren't so agreeable and aren't so wonderful. So it's again, it's it's it, it leans into slippery slope. There, you know, plenty of things that that these machines are doing right. And in fact, I've had arguments with like PR people from Ford about, you know, Blue Cruise versus Autopilot. Can't say that that Autopilot's better than Blue Cruise just because it does more things. Or you can't say Blue Cruise is better than Autopilot because it does the things it does better. It's a weird mess because expectations and reality are just kind of so far from what anybody can, like there's no consensus. Like it's not that the system's supposed to be perfect. It's not that the system's supposed to be safe. Is that the system's supposed to just work, and everybody's definition of just work is different? So, what do you even do with that? Yeah, have you driven uh, autopilot at any point over your career? No, no, only Super Cruise and Blue Cruise. Yeah, and I'm really looking forward to trying the the Mercedes their new yeah. system, which you know, unlike Tesla, Mercedes has said, "Look, if this system screws up." We're backing it. We're guaranteeing it. We're the ones saying it's going to work legally and, you know, just in terms of marketing, which, you know, until Tesla does that, I feel like that should be a giant red flag to people. You know, if if Mercedes, who really hasn't been doing this to the degree Tesla has for any appreciable amount of time, is saying, yeah, we'll back our our system up in the courtroom as much as we will in our advertising and Tesla won't. I mean, I don't know what else you say to that. Yeah, it's it's gutsy on Mercedes' part. I I've driven uh, uh, autopilot a couple times. Once was uh, on the Pacific Coast Highway in California, and I've driven it. Uh, we actually Tesla gave us a press car. <laughs> this is a while ago, uh, back in 2015 or 16, for Tech of the Year, and uh, I think we actually gave it Tech of the Year award, at least one of the awards. When we we may have had like a two kind of faceted approach back then, but it was. I mean, it, it didn't always work, but it, you know, when it did, it did somewhat work. So it's not like totally, hey, we're, we're enthusiasts. We don't want robots to take our cars. That's not it. I use cruise control and I've used super cruise and I've used autopilot. Many times these systems work. It's the approach that I think Tesla is taking here um, is, is wrong, quite simply. So, yeah. Let's do something a little more fun. Let's talk about Scout. This is the off-road brand from like the 60s and 70s, early 80s is coming back. Volkswagen is backing it. It's going to be an EV brand. 
We're talking about an SUV. Uh, it's going to debut sometime probably late next year, Q3 at least, and then the truck a few months afterwards. Production isn't until 26. That means nobody's going to drive these things until 2027. So this is a pretty far ways out, uh, but I think it's kind of cool. Uh, let's put it that way. Uh, you know, there was an interview in um, Automotive News is the one that kind of made the rounds and, you know, we picked up on it and a few others did as well, just talking about where they stand as a company. And I think it's one of the things that in reading this that struck me is this isn't going to be like just a Volkswagen sub-brand. They're really trying to stand this up as an authentic American brand. There's a factory in South Carolina. There's going to be. There's going to be like an R&D center in Novi, Michigan, suburban Detroit, which I just read yesterday or today in the Detroit News. Like these are things that if you're not really backing this to be sort of like a standalone, authentic brand that has real meaning behind it, you don't do. You just find a platform somewhere in the Volkswagen you know, family. Maybe you get that styling right. You pull off some e MEB, I believe, is their battery platform, and you call it a day. You, you, know, you make a deal, and that's it. But that's not what they're doing. And they tapped the head of the former head of VW in America and the head of Audi. He's not running this thing, which when I first heard that, I was like, cool, man. Enjoy what is this your retirement gig until you uh, get your pension or whatever in a few years? But he's really into it. Um, and the more I read about it, the more I'm into it because I like off road vehicles. I like off road style vehicles, even if I don't get to go off road as much as I'd like. Uh, I, I think this could be a really good uh, situation for consumers. And I think this could be pretty cool. I mean, just the news that came out this week, I think, is. It's pretty promising, sort of like a Bollinger that actually happens with money or a Rivian that's also backed by like more money, you know, because Volkswagen has more money than almost anybody, it seems like. So, yeah, I'm feeling optimistic, you know, another EV to face off against the Bronco Wrangler R1T R1S. Sounds good to me. Yeah. And honestly, like, like. The idea that this is going to be like it's going to be a scout first and it's going to be an ev and, and and then whatever it is its components are second is really encouraging and one of the things that we've really yet to see with electric platforms is that you know you have a lot more flexibility in design with them than you do with ice and the problem right now is everybody's still stuck against you know wind resistance air resistance you know dealing with the coefficient of drag and that's kind of limiting their ability to design cool evs because i mean you could just make a box so all it has to do is go around town and you know you never go on the highway then you know if it never has to do better than 70 miles an hour you don't really care about wind but we don't really have too many evs like that here in america i feel like scout's a good opportunity for you know volkswagen to be like hey like we know this isn't going to be efficient as at least not as efficient as any ev could be but the design first attitude that they're taking, I think, is really encouraging. And it might be the first set of Volkswagens where, like, they've really kind of embraced that. The ID Buzz was kind of like their first attempts, like, see, we can do retro and vintage and make it cool. But the fact that they've, like, ignored the Beetle and all these kinds of opportunities they've had to play around with, like, a rear engine setup that EV enables very easily, you know, and just kind of left that out there. I feel like Scout is maybe their first real time to, like, raise flag, be like, hey, yeah, we can do interesting stuff with this from the ground up here it is so i'm i'm really excited about this one 
at first I thought they might be overstretching themselves a little bit, like, because again, you mentioned multiple nameplates they could use as like the overall company's electric, you know, sort of flag bearers, but they're not. And I think this is ambitious, but I think it's a good thing, you know, and they have the nameplate, the name for Scout, which they, they sort of inherited it when they bought, uh, I think it was Navistar. It kind of came with the, you know, with the furniture. Perhaps that was the whole idea in the first place. Who's to say? I don't know. I mean, Daimler Mercedes has a pretty big trucking business as well. But, um, you know, if you're not familiar with Scout, which this is a bit of another deep cut. Let's put it that way. They only made these things from like the 60s and 70s. I believe the last one was made in 80 or early 80s. Uh, if you're trying to get a visual, we have some like sketches up, you know, check those out. Also, like just a mental image. Think of a 60s, early 70s Bronco. That's kind of what this thing looks like. Uh, I think they're going to try to bring back some of that heritage feel, you know, for these new new scouts. And yeah, I think that makes sense. It's, um, you know, I mean, I think it's it could be a lot of fun to drive. And they're going to have Magna, which builds the G-Class. So, you know, that gives them some engineering and truck making chops that Volkswagen as big as a company as it is, they don't really have it. So, you know, that makes, I think a world of sense to try not to do this from the ground up. They're taking their time. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think it's, as I go back and look at the different sort of large off-roady truck things from the sixties and seventies, early eighties, a lot of them are going up in value, you know, and things like from the seventies, you know, even in like the fashion and watch world are getting popular again, because when we were growing up, the seventies weren't that long ago. Now the seventies are a while ago. So like a lot of those trends are coming back and I think scout can start to capitalize on some of that too. It's, it's, yeah, I mean, it definitely could get that kind of lifestyle vibe that has just enough history to make it real, you know, whereas Rivian, they don't have a history. They're just trying to appeal to like, early adopters, EV people with the outdoorsy theme. Scout could bust out the, you know, Cephia colored ads and say, no, this is what it was and this is what it is now. I think that's kind of cool. Yeah. And to your point earlier about them choosing, you know, an American brand and doing an American thing with it, that's always kind of been a, a problem for Volkswagen. It's like they do really well in America with people who are already Volkswagen fans. Yeah. It seems like every time they try to kind of cross over, something goes wrong. The The real success stories, you know, like the, the Type 2 and the Beetle, like, you know, the, the old school, the vintage stuff, even the thing to an extent. Like, you know, there are little things like that that kind of like crossed over into weird mainstream hits for VW here. But they're not very good at at like actually setting out to do that kind of thing it always seems to happen by accident this time around it feels very deliberate and i i'm really hoping it works because there have been so many times where Volkswagen has said yeah we're coming to america we're really going to do it this time and every single time something goes horribly horribly wrong dieselgate ruined their plans to hit you know a million units a year here by now really like it was around i think supposed to be eight hundred thousand by 2020 or something like that that sure did not happen yeah and of course they were saying that before 2016 when dieselgate hit and blah 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 so you know like to, to see them say okay we're gonna do this thing and we're gonna do it for real from the ground up and as american as possible i'm on board 
you know, put up or shut up. This is a big, another big move for them. But I really hope it works this time because it's been really frustrating to watch them fail. <laughs> yeah. It, it feels mean to say that, but I mean, like, you know, you look at Phaeton, you look at, yeah. I mean, I'm not going to say Rutan was a, a failure because it was just, you know, a badge engineering job. But like, you know, if that's the, the most American thing they've ever done, besides make the Jetta a little bigger, then I think it says a lot about how much they, how well they understand the market and how many genuine attempts they've made to break into it. They've been here since 1955 and they still don't really understand the market. I mean, I don't know, that's saying something. Yeah. Uh, and just to say we're not totally dunking on Tesla. I mean, you want to talk about perhaps the most arrogant example of corporate overreach is Dieselgate. I mean, yeah, they cheated and lied. No other way to put it. And Many of the executives were held responsible. There was a big settlement. And frankly, to me, it could have been worse because it wasn't just like safety stuff is always probably worse because people can get hurt. And this, it's certainly, you know, cancer causing emissions that were understated, but it is less on the front end as far as physical injury. But right. um, it was also very blatant. Like, you could argue in some cases that maybe different car companies have thought things were going to work and then they didn't. And then, hey, maybe the cover-up got them. Volkswagen knew they were cheating. Yeah. No doubt about it. So oh, yeah. I digress. I'm reading a book right now called Sweetwater, and a scout is in it. Uh, it's, one, it's a novel. It's by this kind of like indie publisher dude. He has a podcast. And I that was literally one of the reasons like scout like it's just the car the main character drives. I think it's a 73, 74 Scout 2. So then when I was trying to like plan out the show this week, I was like, there's some Scout news. Let's talk about it. Yeah. So, it's a good book, by the way, too. Um, set in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. So, okay. All right. So let's talk about staying with EVs. Let's talk about the new Cadillac EV. This is called the Drumroll, please. We have a new name. We have the Listic. Uh, what do you think of that? Uh, <laughs> I mean, I'm getting a little burned out on all the IQ names. I mean, they're, I, mean, I get it. It's a brand. They're leaning into it. Um, I mean, it's a three row lyric basically mm -hmm. is what we're looking at. It's, yep. you know, like, and the lyric always had some kind of like wagony elements to it. So this is kind of, you know, just stretching it a little bit farther. I honestly like, because it's something else that we're going to get to talking about in this, the Lexus TX yeah, kind of thing, and I'm not going to say it's like they look alike, but just kind of the way the TX yeah. drags that shape out, the way the Grand Highlander yeah. drags out the Highlander shape. This does kind of the same thing for the lyric, but I think the lyric is a better canvas for it. So I think it looks good. I think it looks decent. Yeah. And I, honestly, like Cadillacs, a lot of Cadillacs designs have grown on me since I first like the even the like the XT6, which. The first time, you know, it launched right after Lincoln showed everything and all the Lincolns were gorgeous, Art Deco, overwrought, over the top, like we're, we're doing this styling. And then Cadillac comes along with this very understated XT6 and everybody's like, that's it. That's all you can yeah. come up with. Yeah. But actually, but but now I look at the XT6, I'm like, wow, that's actually like a really nice, well-proportioned front wheel drive three row SUV. Like it's a, a perfectly fine looking thing. And honestly, I think it's actually aging a little bit better than the Lincoln if if I'm being perfectly honest. So like, yeah, 
I'm here for this for this era of Cadillac design. They're doing a pretty good job with with understated elegance, and the lyric interior is so nice that I have high hopes for all of their EV stuff. Like you know, I I haven't seen the inside of the Cadillac Escalade IQ yet. I don't think anybody has, but I feel like that's going to be a very 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 nice place to live. So <laughs> it honestly yeah. costs as much of a house it might as well be, but it's. I'm I'm on board. I'm on board with this, and I think I mean the biggest issue right now, of course, is just getting GM to actually launch some of these things. But you know, whenever it gets here, I think it's gonna. I think it's going to be impressive. Yeah, I agree with you. And then just to kind of explain this more for you know the listeners, check out the story we had this up last week. This is called the Vistic, just because these names start to kind of um, blur together, if you will. I don't know any other way to put it. This, uh, it's Vistic, V-I-S-T-I-Q, Vistique, I don't know. And it's lost between the Lyric and then the Escalade IQ. So this is essentially like their largest luxury crossover to date. Uh, not to be confused with the Optic, which is going to be more of an entry level vehicle. Uh, so it's, yeah, I mean, it's getting a little confusing here with some of these names. Uh, it reminds me of like luxury liners from a hundred years ago, the Atlantique or something. And, you know, they're, I will say this though, for a long time, we've criticized Cadillac about not going where the market is. You know, what are you doing with all these sports sedans? Like I like them, you like them, you own one, but it's like, most people don't want these things. Like as far as a broad consumer mass market approach, enthusiasts do, how do you sell cars? You got to have more crossovers and electrics are the way to do it. So they're at least going in the direction where I think experts have been saying they should. And this is a damn good looking crossover, I think. I like the Lyric too. So uh, yeah. All right. So let's close out the news section with the Haggerty Bull Market. This is a list of future collectibles in simple terms. They do this every year. We usually cover it uh, a lot of stuff Haggerty does, I think, kind of, uh, you know, our listeners and readers find interesting. A lot of different things on here as far as what what would be a good value without necessarily breaking the bank. Now, that means there's some expensive stuff on here. Like, there's a 1989 Lamborghini Countach. So, yeah, like, this ain't cheap. Let's put it that way. But it's also like, hey, some of these are reasonable. You can pay you know, a reasonable amount of money, not necessarily the the cost of your house and get a good deal. You know, it's like, of course, a 60s, you know, Testarossa, you're going to buy and it's going to be worth even more money. These are ones that like you're going to buy and they'll probably give you a good, you know, return on your investment. They're good stocks to buy, like mid cap stocks, I guess. Not the most obvious ones, but you know, some cool stuff on here. I, you know, what stood out to me was the 65 to 70 uh, Impala SS. I think that's a good generation of Chevys. I mean, I really love the early to mid 60s, like just the iconic ones, like 62, 3, 4. But this is a good looking year for that car. And as uh, the owner of a 73 Chevelle, which came afterwards, I like this sort of era, to quote Taylor Swift of Chevys. So that stood out to me. There's some good stuff on here too. What what do you like? Uh, I'm I'm a little surprised that the 2008 to 2013 BMW M3 made this list, and yeah. a, a little extra surprised that 
that Christine pointed out here that the values on those have been inflated for a while because that wasn't the case when I was shopping. I don't know. It's been a while. I was looking into them for a bit. And I mean, this is the car that a lot of people think the CT4V Blackwing should have been V8 powered, naturally aspirated, compact support sedan, right? And of course, it's kind of interesting that people say that now, but BMW did it for one generation and noped out. So clearly, it was not as successful a formula as everybody thinks it might have been. But it, Honestly, for the reasons that everybody cites, I actually was very interested in them for a while, especially right after I drove the the Lexus ISF. And I was like, well, if the Lexus is this good, I feel like the VA powered BMW has got to be even better, right? Um, and so it's interesting that that one's already up there so far, because I, I think a lot of people kind of think of that as the redheaded stepchild of the BMW M3 family, you know, the one that's not powered by an inline six of some type. It's a little a little weird, especially by modern standards. But I mean, it's cool that it's on there. I'm glad that that people are recognizing them for being special and weird, not just for being, you know, the wrong type of M3. So it's kind of cool to see it make the list. Yeah, I think uh, when I think of like cars that are really of our generation, that was a very coveted press car earlier in my era of my career, if you will. That was that was a fun one, uh, a lot to handle. Let's put it that way. Um, Prowler finally made it too. That's that's wild. You get a CJ8 Scrambler, uh, Ferrari FF. That actually, if you're looking to get into a Ferrari and drive it, we got a deal for you, man. Let me tell you. Um, I vividly remember when that car broke embargo in like 2010 or 11. I remember I was working on the web desk at Auto Week, and uh, I remember the pictures came over. I don't think I wrote it up. I think I just published it or something from somebody else. Maybe I wrote it. I don't know. But it was it was a big pivot for Ferrari at that point, and it kind of previewed where they were going to go. And, I mean, if you're looking to get into a Ferrari, I'm telling you, this is like, I mean, freaking like GM SUVs are six figures. You can get a six-figure, mid-six figures, you know, FF here. So that could be a fun one. That's another one I liked. So. All right, let's talk about what we've been driving. I've been driving more of these. You're going to preview the Honda Passport Trail Sport, uh, but by the time you're listening to this, uh, the embargo won't be quite out yet. So we'll just kind of talk about this one a little bit. But uh, I guess we'll start with the Mazda 3. I drove this uh, last week. I really uh, I liked it a lot. It was a very attractive vehicle. Um, well, that's funny. That's the first line of my notes as I'm pulling them up here. Attractive little hot hatch, um, you know, white paint, black wheels, well-proportioned. Mazda does everything they can to make these kind of sleek little fun, fun cars. Uh, the price is where I think we had the most cognitive dissonance as a staff. It's over $38,000. Now, Here's some perspective. That's 10 grand less than the average price of a new vehicle. So, okay, maybe that's a good deal. On the other hand, there's a variety of things that you could perhaps get in its place. And, you know, we kind of, I kind of threw this out there to the staff, including things like a Telluride, you know, BMW 2 Series, Acura Integra, Cadillac CT4, perhaps, an Audi A3. So, the way I kind of kept framing this up mentally is, is this what I would want? I don't think it's necessarily a bad deal. What you're paying for though, are things that are a little bit less seen. You're paying for the chassis, for the steering, for the idea that a Mazda drives 
and handles well and has that sporty DNA, which I think is all here. Arguably, this is one or two of the sportiest Mazdas you could buy, you know, not really including the Miata, but it definitely has that sort of, you know, character. I've driven Mazda 3s on tracks. I drove one at Gingerman a while ago. Uh, I drove, that was the manual. This one, of course, is an automatic. But if you're looking for a fun, small car, I mean, this is definitely it. The question is, is do you want to pay 38 grand when you could get an Audi? Or 38 grand when you could get an Integra? And, you know, I mean, this is also a pretty small car. We, were, we took a bookshelf back to Target. The bookshelf didn't fit. You know, <clears throat> when we went and picked up some groceries, just because we have this sort of standing grocery pickup order that you can do while you're running errands without thinking, filled up the, the, the trunk, the hatch. So these are things that it's like, well, whew, you know, I don't know. I mean, I could get something, you know, larger. This is America, right? I, if I could get a three-row SUV for about 40 grand, I'm going to do it, you know? Um, I'm saying that's somewhat tongue in cheek, but it's not the greatest of values, I guess, in that sense. Uh, you know, this one was pretty loaded to be fair. It's the premium with all wheel drive. So this is pretty high up on the, you know, the dance card of expensive, you know, Mazda threes, you can certainly get into one cheaper. And there were some pretty nice options too. Um, motor was great. 227 horsepower. 310 pound-feet of torque. That's the 2.5-liter turbo. Again, all-wheel drive. Oh, and the color was snowflake white pearl. Beautiful color. Uh, very nice interior, too. Much different than probably some of the Mazda interiors that, again, from the earlier part of my auto journalism career, you'd get in them, and it's like, oh, these plastics are cheap and, you know, not very good. And, you know, this is a very – it felt worth the money. All that being said, I guess that's just a lot of, that was almost like, I, should I get on the like therapy couch here and talk about it saying, I don't really know how I feel about the price, but I did really enjoy driving it. It can be fun driving a smaller car. You know, you can get in and out of parking lots. You can, you know, weave in and out of traffic, like just driving a huge battleship of an SUV or a crossover. You don't have those advantages with this. It's like, oh, Hey, I'm late for kindergarten pickup. I'm going to shoot up the side of the, you know, the parking lot, roll right up, and then I'm out of there. And I can fit, and, you know, the guy in the Sequoia behind me is not doing the same thing, you know. So I liked it. I'm not sure how to think about it, just given all the things you can, um, you know, get at this price point. And, again, it's not that I don't like the car. It's that I'm more – you know, a little torn, you know, would I tell somebody to go buy this thing? I might say, well, it's a great car, but you got to make your peace with spending this much money on a Mazda. Maybe you're okay with that. In which case go to your Mazda dealer. Well, like to me, th this number is insane because 2008, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I bought my, my Mazda speed three for about $24,000 and yep. change. So yeah. for 14 grand more, I would get all wheel drive and a better infotainment system, but less power, a softer suspension, planar seats. Like, I'm just like, in my mind, I'm like, I don't see where the money went. But I mean, obviously it's a very different world now than it was 15 years ago, which is how long ago that was now. That's startling. But <laughs> God, that Speed 3 was a great car, wasn't it? 
I love that thing. That I mean, that car was good and it was good to me. I mean, because I tracked it, autocrossed it, did road trip, put 60 some odd thousand miles on that car. The most miles I put on like any one car I've ever owned. And then I traded it in on the Mustang. And when I did, I, I still kind of regret trading it in, although I did look it up and I think it ended up getting shipped off to Eastern Europe somewhere with a blown engine. So I don't really know what happened after I owned it. But it, it was very good to me, especially considering how unreliable the reputation was on those those Mazda, the DISI turbo engines, since they were kind of there on the, that forefront of direct injection back before everybody had really adopted it. But uh, but yeah, that was that was a, that was a great car. And like I said, like one that I do actually, like I don't have too many cars where I go, man, I really wish I'd kept that, but that's definitely one of them. Um, it would have been a fun thing to work on. And I was Jeremy and I, Korzeniski and I like to uh, look at, at used Mazas from time to time. And like those and RX-8s and stuff like that, we're always like kind of pinging each other with like, eh, are we going to do it this time? And the answer is always no. Because that time in our life has come and gone, and it's like, well, it's that let's let's leave it in the past. The nostalgia is great; it was a wonderful car, but let's not tempt fate. But every time the Mazda three comes through the fleet, I'm like, hmm, do I want to do I want to try that out and just see if I, I I still have the taste for it? Because I think I might. You never know. I tend to think of the Speed three because we had a long termer around the same time we had an Evo Mitsubishi Evo uh, again back at Auto Week and. Both were cars that were just so rock solid chassis, so sporty, um, severe to a certain extent. You know, even as a guy in his 20s back then, it was still like, this is a, a lot to drive, you know, on your commute. Um, yeah, I mean, that, that was the Speed 3 is something I do think there's room for Mazda to find a way to bring back. Maybe even as an electric, you know, that could, could work. I don't know. That would be wonderful. Any any revival of Mazda Speed would be delightful. It's just they're they're so good at making fun cars when they try, yeah. and it's just been so long since they've really tried. I mean, the Miata is the Miata. It's 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 its own thing, and there's there's no, I I can't knock that thing at all. It's it's a wonderful little car, and I'd love to own another one of those too. But the one I have, I think, is going to have to last me a while. The other thing to go back to the value here, like you're talking Civic, Elantra, Prius, Prius Prime. Pull up. Actually, I was looking at car and drivers comparison here, and they have like there's a gazillion things in and around this price point you could get. Again, you really got to fall on the I want this Mazda. Uh, and if you do, though, again, it feels you know embodies all of the ethos of like the Mazda sporting heritage. You know, and I felt that I think it's telling that it feels this way in the three as well as in the Mazda CX90, which I drove a few weeks back in different ways. But it does have that same like sort of, you know, pass through that, you know, thread of the DNA. And not every brand does that. So, yeah, I don't know. Speed three. That's maybe that's what we should talk about. Um, talk about more. I don't know. But all right. We'll close out the drive section here with the uh, the Lexus TX. Now, you actually wrote the first look on this thing. And then I just got into one. This is Wednesday. I got it on Monday. I've been driving it a little bit. I may decide I want to talk more about this next week on the show. We'll see. Um, but why don't you tee it up? Just tell everybody what the Lexus TX is. If you're like, God, Lexus has a lot of names and numbers that I'm confused by. What is this thing in simple terms? Well, essentially what this does is it gives Lexus a genuine three-row 
SUV that is well crossover SUV yep. that is that is meant for the non off roading crowd. Like this yep. is full stop. This is just you know big family vehicle, tons of room. It is a Toyota Grand Highlander mm-hmm. with Lexus draped all over it. So you know it's it's supposed to be practical, it's supposed to be roomy and comfortable. It is not an off road vehicle by any stretch. And it gives them something a little bit better than the old RXL, the long wheelbase RX, which was kind of doing a little bit of double duty for them for a while, but wasn't really large enough to uh, be a true family car. So now they've got this, the TX. And yes, you can call it the Texas if you want to. Yeah. I don't think Lexus is going to get too upset about that, but uh, enjoy it while you can, I guess. This fills a gap for Lexus. I think they kind of needed something like this. I like this better than the Grand Highlander and the Highlander, which I've driven and I think this has a little more character. It feels, um, kind of stands out a little bit. I'm driving one. The color is incognito, which is a fancy way for saying gray. I would almost compare it to that kind of like liquid gray that Audis used to have on some of their sporty cars. I think they called it Nardo gray, which is a bit of marketing speak for colors. It's a very nice vehicle. I have the 500H F Sport Performance Luxury All-Wheel Drive. Uh, so what that means essentially is I've got a large three-row hybrid uh, in F-Sport trim. Looks really good. I will say this, F-Sport, you know, looks good, I think, on their larger vehicles. It's a little bit of a cliche to make them kind of dress up with this, like, sporting performance stuff when they don't really have that, like, you know, the sedans and the coupes did. But it looks good. People are looking at this thing. I've had multiple people come up and ask me, like, what is that thing? You know, because the Lexus badges aren't super prominent. Uh, it's comfortable. You know, the powertrain is pretty strong. Uh, you get a ton of torque. I didn't realize this because I was taken off and I'm like, whoa, it's 409 pound feet of torque. And that's at 4,600 RPM. So that's a fair amount of torque. Not all that high up in the band. 366 horsepower. And it's you're getting all this from a turbocharged inline four. It's only 2.4 liters. So you're getting a lot. Um, lots of good screens in there. The speakers are solid. These are Mark Levinson jams. They sound good. Infotainment screen is big. It stands out to me. I was in an Audi uh, SQ5, I think, a couple weeks ago. And they had like a 10.1 inch screen or somewhere in there. And I was like, God, this looks small. And I don't really like screens in my car. This one... 14-inch touchscreen, then you get a 12-inch multi-information the screen for the driver. Um, plenty of different like modes and things you can do that I haven't even totally played with yet. Cameras everywhere, which is good. It just feels like a very like like Lexus put their backs into this one. They're like, we're gonna make a big vehicle, we're gonna make it as good as we can, we're gonna throw the kitchen sink at it, and it costs 77 grand. And honestly, I think that's fair. It's a Lexus, it's three rows, it's huge. Um, you know, again, we mentioned the Telluride is sort of one of our bogeys for prices. You want to spend 40, go get that. You want to spend 40 on a small car, Mazda's there for you, apparently. But if you want to spend 77, which is what these things cost, I mean, you know, this is a solid vehicle. I think it not only is it good for Lexus customers, I think it's also something that could get some non-Lexus customers into the fold. And the segment is getting more and more competitive. A year or two ago, 77 grand for just some crossover. I'd be like, you kidding me? That's a lot of money. This should be 60, 65. Don't feel that way anymore. Inflation, car prices have gone up. 
And I think everybody's invading this segment, you know, whether you want to get a loaded up Tahoe or Yukon, or you want this thing, it's, um, and in some ways, I think this takes the place of the Land Cruiser a little bit too, like on the Lexus side of things, because when the Land Cruiser, the old version went away, they did lose, the company lost a large, you know, SUV, and this thing fills that premium uh, gap as well now. So did you actually go to Texas to see this or did you, you went there? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That was in, right. uh, that was in Austin back in June. Yeah. I want to say it was yep. something like that. Yeah. So how do you, I mean, I guess you haven't driven it yet, but how do you feel about this thing? Am I overly optimistic? Am I, the uh, other way to look at it is it's expensive, you know, enormous Lexus with too many screens, which is fair. Well, I mean, I, I had kind of a, a, an unfortunate setup there because you know, that, that event was the same one where they announced the replacement for the GX. Yep. And so they had GX everywhere. There were like three GXs set up, you know, and, and then they had the TX off in a little corner. Like, you know, they were like, oh, yeah, by the way, we have that too. And so we got to spend a little bit of time with it, but it, it was really not the focus of that event. Um, but getting to crawl around it, I mean, it, it, it felt really nice. Um, the backseat. The, the third row actually felt really nice. Like I sat back there, especially to try and get photos of the interior of the cabin, things like that. And I got a chance to actually feel that space out. It's uh, it feels very luxurious and the connectivity options back there seem good. The new Lexus infotainment is decent. Um, in fact, my biggest gripes about the infotainment aren't with the functionality. It's with like, you know, the, the ads you get on the screen when you aren't subscribed to the Lexus, whatever the, their subscription thing is and stuff like that. But like, all in all, yeah, it does look like a very good package and one that that Lexus has needed for a while. The fact that it took them this long to get a genuine like mid-size three row that you can actually put real human beings in the back of. I mean, it's it's been a long time coming. And I mean, just especially like getting to see it right next to the new GX and, you know, the, the, the jump seat style third row in the GX has always been like viewed as an afterthought and seeing it next to the TX where you actually get a real third row. It's like, Oh yeah, that's the real deal. So I agree with you. It's an impressive looking car and I'm sure that and the grand Highlander will both do very well. All right. So let's talking about crossovers, SUVs. Let's talk about the Honda passport trail sport. Yeah. Uh, preview this for me. Yeah. So, I mean, the Trail Sport isn't new, strictly speaking. They they introduced a Trail Sport on the Passport uh, Cup, I want to say it was for 2022. And so th this package already exists. There's actually very little. This is still on the the same old Passport platform. Like, this is not a, a even really a mid-cycle refresh or anything like that for Passport. This is just a few few small, like, nip and tuck updates here and there. Um, so the suspension for the Trail Sport model is getting an overhaul with this update. So that's new compared to the old. And the car also got a new set of tires, their uh, general all-terrain tires. And so the the Trail Sport models on the updated, well, model, singular, of the, the Pilot, which is on the updated global SUV platform for Honda, that one gets a different set of tires. I believe they're Continental all-terrain tires on that one. And Honda says the Generals work better with the chassis from the older trucks, so the Passport sticks with the Generals because it has not been updated to the new platform yet. So when the Passport finally gets redesigned, that's when we'll probably see it migrate over to the new platform, the same one that the Pilot's on. But for now, this is still on the, the older version of the Honda truck chassis. So it's... You know, it is what it is. I can't talk about how it drives quite yet, but just don't expect anything crazy from this. It's a 
some suspension tweaks. It's really mostly relegated to the to the the trail sport model. There aren't many updates to the standard passport coming along with this. But of course, we'll detail all of that. The embargo on that lifts on Tuesday, so check out Drive Impressions on Tuesday after 9 a.m. Eastern time. Sounds good. At this point, I think you've probably, uh, you know, you'll be ready for the next episode of the Autoblog podcast. You know, it'll be, uh, you know, almost a full week since this one dropped. So, uh, yeah, man, uh, it's tis the season. Uh, any holiday drink recommendations? So uh, we've actually we're, we're going through our stockpile of leftover cider because we, we were really in a fall mood. It was it was cider, donuts and rum here in the uh, in the herd house. But uh, I, I, we're kind of looking to transition over. We're starting the, the the winter warmer beers are starting to show up here and there. I'm very much looking forward to getting my hands on some Great Lakes Brewing Christmas mm-hmm. ale here. And I think good one. in fact, I'm, I'm pretty sure they actually launched that right around Thanksgiving. Um, but it's kind of tough to find around here. I mean, despite the fact that we border Ohio, the uh, the the local rivalry seems to extend to alcohol distribution. So it can be tricky to find the the stores that stock it. But I know they're around here, and they don't do the uh, the big launches like they did when I was in Cleveland or even in D.C. We used to get Cleveland Brewing, all their 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 various breweries would do like you know little pop up launches and stuff like that. You just don't see those around here. But I get it. Speaking of neighboring Michigan, I've been drinking a lot of Labatt Blue Light uh, from Ontario. Uh, it's hockey season. The Red Wings are interesting, competitive, feisty. It's been interesting. So I've been, you know, you get to that point kind of in winter where it's cold and I just, I kind of like a good hockey beer. So no deep cut recommendation for me this week, but uh, Blue Skies, Blue Light, uh, go Red Wings. So if you enjoy the show, that's uh, five stars on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you might get your podcasts. Uh, please send us some spend your monies. We'd love to spend your money. It's podcast at autoblog.com. We will have a bit of an upcoming holiday break in the podcast coming up here towards the end of the month. Uh, you know, be, we will be here next week. And of course, we will be uh, around uh, the first week of January. So be safe out there. Thanks for hanging out, Byron. We'll see everybody next week. Bye.